You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello and welcome to the first in our series of Trowers and Hamlins podcast on regeneration. What does it mean? I'm delighted today to welcome Mary Parsons, who's the Director of Regeneration and Partnerships at Lovell Partnerships. Hi, Mary. Hi, Sarah. Um, This is a really fascinating subject. It's a subject that that I've been involved in for over 30 years, which shows my age. But I find regeneration in its truest form a really, really amazing area. But I was really interested from your point of view, um, starting with you, I suppose, rather than than necessarily Lovell. uh, What do you define regeneration as? I think it's a really good point you make about your age. You can sort of, it's like the rings on trees. It's how many rounds of regeneration funding and programs and that, you, that you, you've gone through in your career. And I think, you know, first of all, I think it's it's so good that regeneration's back on the agenda. It's felt like, you know, it had been in the wilderness for, for a few years and everything was being defined by sort of economic growth and housing numbers. Um, so having it at the center of of conversations like this is great. And it's one of those words that really means so many different things to different people. Um, But it is in a sense, part of the natural cycle of a place. If if you think that places grow, they decline, they regenerate, they redefine themselves. That's always happened. Um, But I think the clue for me is actually in the word, that bit about generating, of of recreating, of of generating energy, generating opportunity, bringing somewhere back to life, you know, maybe changing its identity, but at the same time sort of staying true to where it comes from, which I think is really important. And I'm kind of thinking of like Doctor Who regenerations as well in that sense. You can go through multiple reincarnations, um, but it's always the sort of same heart or hearts in, in their case beating inside. Um, but I think for me personally, regeneration has always been more about reconnecting because I think places fail when they're disconnected from something. That It, it might be that they're disconnected from economic opportunity or they've lost their purpose, they're physically disconnected because of lack of infrastructure or they're socially excluded, you know, whether the design, the education choices or poverty. So I think for me, you know, regeneration is is about reconnecting more than anything else. And following that theme through, I mean, I, I know there's lots of people talk about that they do regeneration. There's loads, loads of, of, of companies out there who say they're a regeneration specialist, where if I was honest, I would probably call part of that redevelopment rather than regeneration. What, what do you see the additional elements that make a project regeneration rather than redevelopment? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're really right that if you're only changing the sort of physical, the built environment, it feels more about renewal, you know, and don't get me wrong, that can be absolutely transformative in a place. You know, if you've got somewhere that's been blighted by decay and and dereliction, you can get some absolutely stunning places creating by reimagining the built environment. Um, But I think for me, regeneration has to have people at the heart of it. It's not just the bricks and mortar. And it goes back to that bit about sort of reconnecting, um, and your point about sort of showing showing your age, if, you, if you're old enough to remember the much maligned housing market renewal um, programme, 
that ran, I think it was from 2002 until Eric Pickles finally um, put it out of its misery, I think about 10 years later. You know, there, there was a lot of things that weren't great with how it was articulated, but the logic behind it was absolutely bang on. You know, they, they were places where the housing markets were disconnected from economic opportunity. You know, they'd lost their former quite often industrial economic purpose. And there was that mismatch between the homes and the tenures and the jobs. I worked on um, Walker Riverside in Newcastle. So right along where the, the dockyards used to be. And those dockyards were going through a renaissance into really high skilled, high paid offshore engineering jobs. But the people that lived in Walker didn't yeah. have the skills or education to access them. And the people that access those jobs didn't want to live in the housing choice and the place that surrounded them. So I think it's that bit about, you know, really getting the two to work in, in tandem. And that logic was fine. The issue was it was a housing programme and housing isn't the only regeneration issue. It's part of the problem, but it's rarely the sole problem. And, you know, I think another good example and possibly contradicting myself on the renewal point, but if you look at something like Park Hill in Sheffield, which I worked on for a number of years in partnership with Urban Splash, you know, that was stripping back to the chassis, the, the building and renewing the fabric. And it's actually the largest listed building in Europe, I believe. But that was the ultimate symbol of urban decay. And it was, you know, you look at it as a hugely complex construction project. It's great. But it's Premier League regeneration because although the original community had largely gone, those that wanted to stay could. And all the way through, the focus was on building a community, different communities than had been there before, injecting life back, you know, looking at interim uses, the choice of commercial tenants, putting social infrastructure like nurseries in, huge amount of work on arts and culture and you were drawing people into a place they'd have never have dreamt they'd have wanted to go to and you were making them really want to be there and that to me is is real regeneration that hits the nail on the head for me because actually every regeneration program is different um and you're doing it for different reasons in the different areas so what yeah. might if a Park Hill not work, the Newcastle, or, or I mean, I remember very much the Biker Estate, for example, when the Biker Estate was done and all those sort of areas. So I think, again, the key for me is it isn't one size fits all. Mm. Like you're really going to do regeneration. It's not. Definitely. So one of the things we see regeneration about is creating places that encourage diversity and diversity in all its forms. So it's that balance, I suppose, between gentrification and keeping the local community is actually fundamentally part of it, but also just bringing more diversity sometimes needed into a place. How are you as an organisation looking to contribute to that discussion? I mean, I think it is a really important point because I think, you know, diversity brings that vibrancy. It, it brings resilience to, to a community and, and its choice. But I think it is about diversity in the broadest sense. So for Lovell, it's about creating places without barriers that welcome, you know, people from all walks of, of life in. Um, somewhere where they can find a home where they can put down roots and I think it's in the the topologies and the tenures of the homes it's the mix of uses and it is that bit about a broad range of lifestyles so Lovell now for example has our later living team 
uh, so that within and particularly our larger developments, we can introduce sort of age appropriate homes and extra care and we, we can keep people within within their communities and within their social networks. Um, but I think for us, it's also been about supporting those who struggle in the housing market. As a partnerships developer, we'd be typically 40 to 50 percent affordable and as well as genuinely affordable, thinking as well about intermediate and um, built to rent homes as well, so that we can offer a sort of complete housing market offer. And um, something, you know, we've we've discussed before, having been in the housing association sector for 15 years before joining Lovell, those swathes of monotenure social housing were one of the biggest challenges to any landlord because so often people weren't choosing to live there. It was where they were allocated if they had no choice. And those that had a choice left as soon as they could afford to. So you, you got this downward spiral that was incredibly hard to break. So I think for Lovell, you know, being a partnerships developer, it's not only our commercial model, it's almost an ideological one, if you, if you like, because we think mixed tenure creates better, more diverse places and it brings people together as a community. But but just picking up the, the point you made about regeneration and gentrification and, and the sort of very blurred lines between the two. Yeah, I think it is that point by by broadening the tenure choice, it shouldn't be at the expense of driving the existing community away. And there's so many examples of that where, you know, demolition and rehousing has raced ahead and people have left. And because of a lag in the new bill following for funding or market or whatever reasons, that original community gets displaced and you never get them back. And I think, you know, that is a huge missed opportunity. You can have a great development project, but it stops being a real regeneration project then. And looking at so those successful regeneration projects in, in the past, and, and obviously you've worked on a, a huge number of projects, um, it's very easy looking back to go, wow, that was an amazing project, and forget some of the challenges that those projects have had. Um, and actually, I would say, being, being a lawyer, it's not, it, I always say, if you look back at a legal document, you've got a major problem on your hands ever doing that. But there needs to be flexibility because these projects take a long time and things change, economic challenges come in. So what are the key challenges you've seen that the projects of this nature create? Um, I mean, I think there's four that immediately come to mind, but I think sort of wrapped around all of them and picking up what you say. The only thing that's certain about regeneration is what you say right at the start is going to happen is not what is actually going to happen. Um, by nature, things are going to change and you do need to be able to evolve and adapt and, and keep delivering. You can see so many that have ground to a halt or partners have walked away because they weren't really set up to think about th those challenges. And you've touched on the biggest one, time. Um, they take a long time. And by nature, they always take longer than you think they're going to be. And there is that sense of how do you stop an area degenerating before the regeneration really kicks in? When you've got people moving out and demolition happening, you unsettle people. You know, people are wanted, feeling like they're putting their lives on hold. They don't know where what's going to happen for their kids and so on. How do you keep the community on side with you all of the way through? And you've got to accept, you know, if you're looking at a 10 year plus program, you are going to go through multiple economic and political cycles so how can you set it up at the start to keep going when the market does start to shift and, and building in that resilience and, and that leads on to my second one on funding you cannot 
and going back to the housing market renewal, plan a 20 year regeneration programme or a housing market restructuring and then fund it through three to five year comprehensive spending reviews that could be pulled at any time with with multiple funding streams you know where you're trying to achieve their program outputs when actually what you really want to do is have a clear plan for the place you're creating and be able to to have the funding support it not dictate it it does drive the wrong behaviors and investment decisions you end up spending it on consultants or short-term things because of the fear of losing it and i think it was fantastic hearing peter denson when he he took over at homes england talking about place-based conversations that they'd sit and talk with the public sector partners and agree what needs to be done and then they juggle all the different funding parts to enable it to happen in a more seamless way you know that is brilliant if it can happen but you've also got to give Homes England that longer time horizon to be able to plan for it as well. So I think we're getting there. Uh, I think risk and reward between partners, you know, you have to be in regeneration for the long term. Few people make short term profits out of regeneration and it is risky. So you've got the Land Assembly, CPO, Brownfield, and that's where the public sector needs to, to come in to help pump prime and de-risk help the market to be able to come in and deliver, but also be entitled to a fair share of the value uplift that their investment is creating as well. And that's sometimes quite difficult to get, get the balance right. And then the last one, which you did touch on, is, is resilience and uncertainty, because from a procurement and legal perspective, getting that balance between knowing you're going to get delivered what you want and you get the quality and the resources and everything committed but that you don't try to tie everything down from the start and then grind to a screech halt every time something changes. You know, for me, you've got to be brave and pick a partner that looks at life the same way as you and focus on the outcomes you want to achieve together. Don't be over prescriptive on inputs and outputs because they're the means of measuring to the end. They're not the end in itself. And I think sometimes you get to the end of a long procurement process and you've lost sight of that really, because it is about the process and not the outcome. Yeah. And I think one of the things I've learned as a lawyer on it is that um, the worst case scenario is where you find yourself with a transaction where you've got about 20 variations to it afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in, way back in past, I, you know, I remember those picking those up and, and you've tracking your way through how many variations you had. And that was because everything was so definitive that it was never going to be flexible enough to deal with the market. Um, so I completely agree. The last thing you need is to keep paying us to come and do a variation. <laughs> but I, I also think on these long-term programmes, you've got to be realistic that people within both organisations are going to come and go. And people have got to pick something up in motion and make sense of it. And the contracts and everything that are there, as you said, you know, almost in the event that something isn't working. Yeah. But you've got to be able to understand where you started and are you actually on track and yeah. I think there isn't an easy one on that one. I'm going to sneak an additional question in just because I find this this one I find really fascinating. Over these projects which takes so long can be 10 years can be 20 years can be 25 years how do you keep your the local community engaged and how do you keep your stakeholders engaged throughout that process because I can see at the beginning there's a big flurry of consultations and getting everyone involved but once you start how do you keep that momentum going? I mean, it is really difficult. It's also how do you make sure that your the views that you're getting are representative of the community yeah. and not just a minority that have the, the time or capacity to be involved. But you're also thinking about the future community and how it changes over time. 
and and that is is sort of quite difficult um, for an existing community to understand that actually it's going to be a different place. I think there's different levels. You know, we we talk about engagement, but sometimes um, it's real hands on. You know, what are the challenges in your area before you you come up with a master plan and 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 so on? It, it's getting inside the community's head to understand what's really good about the place, but actually what could be better. And someone gave me a bit of advice the once that says, you know, focus on what's strong with the community, not just what's wrong. Yeah. If, if you call an area a regeneration area, you're putting a big sign that's saying like, oh, problem, problem. You know, they, they, we're going to change it, but it's not great currently. And, and that's really quite um, demoralizing. So I think it's involving them in the right things. It's getting them to share the issues and the opportunities and showing you're responding to those in, in the plans that you're coming up with. You know, I think at that stage, we tend to have a planning process currently that is very um, bureaucratic. It's very technocratic you know, breaking that down into meaningful engagement. We've got fantastic kit like virtual reality headsets and, you know, we could be walking around an area with people helping them imagine what it would look like. And instead we put a lot of two, you know, flat plans as if we were looking down from a, a helicopter. We've got to engage people with what they want the place to be and have that clear vision so that actually every decision we're making on the way through, um, they can see that we're getting closer to it. But it is really challenging and it is that bit about their fear is people will stop caring. You know, if, if they're in social housing, that their landlord's not going to invest in homes that might only be there five years. They don't know from program, are they going to be there five years, 10 years? Should they decorate? You know, what, what should they be doing? So we've got to give them the right information. But we've also got to understand that people whether it's regeneration or just new build, resist development because they feel actually it's not going to make their lives better. We've got to make sure we sell to them the benefits that them and their families are going to get. Yes, it's 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 about being empathetic in its truest sense, isn't it? And really understanding yeah. people. That's what it's about, is regeneration. Finally, coming to the, the great levelling up agenda, how do you see the role of the private sector contributing to the levelling up sort of plans? Even if you don't like the name, the logic and what you're trying to achieve, you know, we, we've had so much evidence as to why it, it, it is actually needed. And I think it's sort of it is stepping outside the delivery of new homes. You know, this is something far bigger and that housing does play a massive role in tackling those inequalities, whether they're, they're sort of economic, they're social or particularly health inequalities. Um, but Leveling up is really thinking about that investment into transport and, and infrastructure and education and skills. Um, and I was one of the Building Better, Building Beautiful commissioners back in 2019. And we talked a lot then about regenerating regeneration and ending what we were calling the scandal of left behind places. Um, and I think what that showed and I, I did work on the No Place Left Behind Commission, which uh, was a follow-up chaired by, by Toby Lloyd into community-led regeneration, is that the top-down approaches from government often result in the places being further left behind. Um, it's not big, shiny 
time center investments, vanity projects, where one area is competing against another to access funding. It is those bits about place-based conversations again. Um, and, and for me, leveling up isn't just leveling up between regions, it's tackling those inequalities within um, towns and cities. And that's where you need that sort of local approach where you really have got communities at the heart of it. But I think from a private sector involvement, public sector's got to accept they can't achieve levelling up on their own. I think most, most do get that. You know, they don't have the resources, the, the capacity or, or the cash to do it. Um, and whilst many want to kind of control it, they need to see their role as enabling, that they have a very clear plan that gives confidence to the private sector that they're making targeted investment, which will help unblock the, the market. And the private sector needs to be there to make it happen, but except it, it is going to be in partnership. There isn't a sort of one sector approach on this. Um, and I was thinking, you know, what, what would be a good illustration? And Lovell work with our geographies across a number of combined authority areas where they're taking quite different approaches. We've done a lot of work with Andy Street and the West Midlands team. And what has been really great to see there is, is how the strategy hasn't been about that previous approach of, of pumping investment and growth into the sort of principal city in a region and hoping, you know, like dropping the stone into the pond, the ripples will go out across the other areas. And, you know, as it gets more unaffordable to live in a city, people will move further out and buy homes. You know, it, it's just not a sensible way of doing it. And what they've really focused on is allowing each of the areas within the region to start to improve, to, to define their future purpose, their role within the region. Um, you know, some are anchored by the university expansion or by inward investment opportunities. So that not only Birmingham grows and flourishes, but Wolverhampton and Dudley and Walsall and Sandwell, they're all starting to level up alongside and I think what's really good is how the private sector is really responding to that and seeing opportunities in those town centres and those secondary areas that a few years ago they probably wouldn't have looked at. And, and someone once sort of described it as making a pizza where you sort of drop the topping on and you spread it to the end and you get that really hard, crusty bit around the edge of it that's then left in the box at the end. I think it's actually a really good approach to making sure every one of those areas is getting a fair share, you know, and I think, to be honest, it's quite a good way of looking at, at regeneration that we try and make sure there's no crispy bits left at the end. I think that's a brilliant analogy. I come from Dewsbury near Leeds and um, for a long time, actually, by Leeds being regenerated, it sucked the life out of the surrounding towns. Yeah. Everybody went into into the centre and nobody then came to Dewsbury. We always said when Marks and Spencers left, then we knew that was it um so it is really interesting how you do that I, and i completely agree i think i think the, the combined authorities across the country have got to really start thinking about how they internally level up as well as yes just, so i think it's the internal leveling up as well as national thank you so much for your time mary that was brilliant i um, really appreciate it uh, and i'm sure you know we'll be seeing lots of levels and um, doing these partnerships and regeneration projects going forward thank you no that's brilliant thanks very much travis for inviting me really enjoyed it thank you you have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at Trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.